Thank you for wonderful time of song. Amen. Well, good morning, brothers and sisters. It is, thank you. Thanks, Cam. It's, uh, it's great to, uh, to be with you all this morning. I got a couple of just thank yous as we get started. As you know, um, my wife gave birth to our beautiful daughter, Sailor Rose, uh, one month ago today. She's celebrating one month of life. And um, we, are, uh, we are just extremely, extremely thankful for each and every one of you, uh, for your prayers, uh, for your encouragement. Especially, I am thankful for the food. Uh, the meal train has been uh, just, just a blessing. Uh, um, I was telling someone recently, one of the things that I always, when, when my wife gives birth, and uh, especially like after our, our first, and I, I realize how much work it is to stay home and take care of kids. Uh, we homeschool, and so we've been trying to uh, fit that in uh, into the schedule with uh, the kids now. And I'm not even having to, like, cook food, right? It is hard work. Uh, and so I always grow in appreciation even for my, my wife uh, during these times. But uh, we couldn't do it without you. Uh, we are very thankful for uh, just the love. Uh, this church has been a blessing uh, to us in many ways. If I talk too much about you, I'll start to get emotional. So I'll spare you from that. I want to give a special thank you uh, as well to Pastor Brandon and Pastor Gabe. Uh, they have uh, just been more than generous in uh, just the ways that they have served. Uh, I am thankful. You should be thankful that we have faithful men uh, such as them that serve this body uh, along uh, with me. It's, a, uh, it's just a joy. It's been a, a pleasure to just be able to sit under their teaching for the last four weeks. Uh, and just to grow and to learn and to not even have the, the pressure and the weight of uh, just even trying to prep sermons. I've been able to just concentrate on uh, serving my family uh, in, this, in this transitional uh, period. I know everybody doesn't get that uh, luxury, but I am grateful that, uh, that I have been given that privilege. And uh, so just thank you, brothers. Uh, love you guys and very thankful uh, for you both. If you're visiting with us for the first time, welcome. As Pastor Gabe said, I want to encourage you, uh, fill out that uh, connect form. There's a QR code on the back of the bulletin. Uh, we'd love to get to know you. Uh, I'd love to just learn more about you, tell you uh, whatever question, answer whatever questions you have about uh, the church. Uh, we've been studying the gospel according to John. And today we find ourselves in John 3. 16, we're going to work our way through verses 18. So if you have a copy of God's Word, I really encourage you uh, to. If you don't have a copy, uh, you can raise your hand and uh, someone, one of our ushers will grab you a copy. There's some in the back uh, of the, at the table back there. I'm going to be teaching from the ESV. John 3, it's the Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. If you're new to the Bible, it's in the New Testament. Ask somebody beside you. The big numbers are going to be the chapters. Uh, the small numbers will be the verses. John 3, 
16 through 18. I'm going to read this for us. And I haven't been up here in so long preaching. I, I'm just trying to make sure I, I know my way around here. So John 3, 16 through 18. I'm going to read this. I'm going to pray for us. And then uh, we will dive into God's word. God's word says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Let us pray. Father God, we need your help this morning in ways that are just unexplainable. We need you to work in and through this passage, through your word, to change us, to make us into who you've called us to be. Father, I pray that this time would be glorifying to you. We would exalt the name of Christ. And I pray that anyone who walked in here this morning, burdened, heavy laden, would find rest in the love of God. Pray that those who may have walked in haughty, prideful, would be humbled. That you, God, would set your love on them. And they would see their need for a Savior. And that answer would be Jesus Christ. Father, I ask that what we know not, you would teach us. And what we are not, you would make us. What we have not, you would give us by your grace, for your glory, in Christ's name. And God's people said, amen. So today, we look at one of the most well-known passages in all of Christianity, John 3, 16. Now, there's a good reason for its popularity. John 3, 16 presents one of the most succinct summaries of the gospel in all of Scripture. Martin Luther called John 3.16 the heart of the Bible, the gospel in miniature. Indeed, Martin Luther was correct in his definition of this monumental passage that clearly communicates in most simple form the extraordinary love of God. And when we look at John 3.16 in the full context that it was written, we see God's love clearer and brighter, as if it were a full moon sitting in a cloudless midnight sky. Listen, brothers and sisters, correctly understanding the love of God is essential to the Christian life. It is essential. We need a solid theology of God's love. We need to rightly understand the love of God because it essentially affects everything else we think about God. Jonathan Edwards is very famously known for his sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. 
But Jonathan Edwards didn't just preach about the wrath of God. He also taught on the love of God. Here's a quote that I think is very important as we help to think about the framework that we should approach this passage. He says this, I quote, There is such love and such grace in the heart of God that if you understood the length and breadth and height and depth of it, you would never be discouraged. You would never be discouraged. Essentially, he's saying if if we get God's love right, if we understand who God is, then we will be people of hope and encouragement. Brothers and sisters, this is my, my hope and my prayer for us as a church, that we would be a people encouraged and compelled by the love of God. So today what I want to do is I want to point out five realities of the extraordinary love of God. Five realities of the extraordinary love of God. Before we get to our text, I just want to refresh everyone's memory. I know there's some people that uh, haven't been with us for the past couple of weeks. I want to really encourage you, if you haven't been here, uh, check out our Spotify, the YouTube, listen to uh, especially the past uh, couple of weeks' sermons to to really get the full context of this. But I want to give us just a brief summary to catch us up to speed here. So here in our text, in this portion of John, one of the most prominent Pharisees and leaders of the Jews, a man named Nicodemus, has come to Jesus. He's come to Jesus. He's acknowledged that Jesus is a good teacher. Uh, He says, hey, this Jesus seems to have been sent by God. So he acknowledges that. Um, He bases that on the signs that Jesus Christ has accomplished up to this point. But remember, as Pastor Brandon uh, rightly presented, that he doesn't necessarily believe that Jesus is the Messiah. He doesn't have a a full theology of who Jesus Christ is. He's basically coming to Jesus as a kind of one teacher to another teacher framework. He's like, hey, from from one teacher to another, because remember what he says. He says, you are a good teacher. You're a teacher that has been sent by God. Nicodemus himself was one of the most prominent teachers in the land. Essentially what Nicodemus is trying to get is a a better understanding of what else he can do to gain favor with God. We've been doing this. I need to learn, like, what else we can do. You seem to be a good teacher, so from one teacher to another, teach me. Help me figure it out. But Jesus blows up the conversation, doesn't he? I mean, he really derails Nicodemus' angle as he lets Nicodemus in on the fact that I'm not just a teacher, bro. I am the Savior, the Son of God, who has come to save his people. Verse 14, just above our text, Jesus reminds Nicodemus of the time that God 
told Moses to put a bronze serpent on a pole and said that all the Israelites who looked at it would what? They would live. He said they'll turn away from what's going on. They'll look to this serpent. They will live. And then Jesus makes a comparison to himself as being one who will be what? Lifted up. In similar fashion to this familiar story that Nicodemus would have known well. And Jesus tells him something very, very important. He says, whoever believes in him and in me will have eternal life. Now listen, Nicodemus would have been bewildered. He would have had his his mind blown. He would have been so confused and so taken back from everything he thought that he would have likely just sat there quietly, kind of rehearsing all the things he had been taught and had taught. By Jesus saying, whoever believes in me will have eternal life. It would have been kind of a a gut punch to this law-keeping Pharisee. Now, John doesn't record this, but we can speculate that he was thinking, like, whoever? Does whoever mean, like, like, all the Jews? When you say whoever, you mean, like, everyone that's kept all the, the laws, the ceremonial Laws, the rigorous demands that the Jews, the Pharisees have then given to the Jews. But then here in our text, in verse 16, Jesus galvanizes what he has been telling Nicodemus all along. The point that he's been trying to communicate is that salvation is based on the work of God, not the works of man galvanizes this point here. And he quickly clears up any confusion of who salvation is offered to when he says in verse 16, for God so loved the world. Here we see this first reality of God's love. The extraordinary love of God is transcendent. The extraordinary love of God is transcendent. And here's what I mean. God's love transcends all ethnic, cultural, and socioeconomical backgrounds and barriers. There is nothing that you have done or anywhere that you have come from that prohibits you from God's love. Once again here, Nicodemus likely thought with many other Jews that the Jews were the sole object of God's love. They they thought that Jesus, or the Messiah, would come. He would set his love just on the Jews. And this understanding was misconstrued, was wrong. And Jesus tells him here that God's love is not confined to one people group. It's not just one particular 
uh, group of people, it is extended to all of God's creation. Uh, The word world here means all of humanity. Okay, it means all of humanity and specifically all of sinful humanity. See, God loves the world he created. And and we've got to really take that into consideration as we deal with the world around us. And we know that God loves the world he created because God himself is love. So he can't do anything outside of his love. 1 John 4, 8 reminds us, anyone who does not love does not know God. And why? Because God is love. Notice he doesn't say that God does love or God can love or God might love. He says God is love. Some of you may be thinking, you may be asking, God is love and he loves this sinful world. How can he still be just? How can he still be righteous? How can God still be wrathful? Well, there's a theological term that has been used throughout the centuries that is called the divine simplicity. Write that down, divine simplicity. Okay, this is what that means. Very simply put, means that God is not made up of parts. He is not composite or a compounded being. He is simple in the fact that everything about him is God. So God is God. There there aren't separate components working against each other. They all are harmonized together. R.C. Sproul puts it like this. He says, I quote, Though love is an attribute of God, an extremely important attribute of God, God is a simple being. Not in the sense that he is simplistic, but we understand that God is not made up of parts. God is his attributes. So that to understand any single attribute of God, you must understand that attribute as it relates and connects with all the other attributes of God, end quote. So brothers and sisters, we must look at God's love in perfect harmony with all of God's other attributes and rightly say that God loves the world. He loves the world. Listen, this would have offended Nicodemus. It might offend some of you. Nicodemus here has likely considered all non-Jews lower than human, scum of the earth. I mean, he, he was a racist. He, he thought everyone who was Gentile, meaning non-Jew, they, they called them dogs, actually, and not like man's best friend. Scavengers, lower than low. We don't like those people. God loves us because we have done fill in the blank. But here, Nicodemus' world's changed. 
he's brought to the reality that God so loved the world. Brothers and sisters, this should be wonderful news for you and I. That God loves the world. This wicked world that if you are saved, you were saved from. And if God had not set his love on the world, then guess what? None of us would be saved. He loves us. He loves the world. Secondly, we see the second reality that the extraordinary love of God is lavish. Lavish. We established that God has a love for the entire world that he created. So what does he do to show this love? Like if he loves the world, how does he express his love to the world? We'll keep reading. Verse 16. So love the world that he gave his only son. You got a pencil or something. I mean, circle gave, underline that. He gave his only son. Brothers and sisters, this is a love like no other. This is a love that goes beyond just normal generosity. It's not just a benevolent love. It is a love that gives. We see that this lavish gift of the Son is based on God's love for the world. The world doesn't do anything. And we'll get to that here in a moment. Paul picks up this theme in Ephesians chapter 1. Uh, if you've got a Bible, turn over there with me real quick. Ephesians chapter 1. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians. Look at verse 3 here. You really see Paul picking this theme up of this lavish love that God has for his people. And he says in verse 3, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, in love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Verse 7, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Verse 8, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things to him, things in heaven and things on earth. I think we get the picture here. God has lavished 
his love. He has given his son in all wisdom. Like, like he knew what he was doing. This wasn't a haphazard. This wasn't a reaction to the sins of the world. This was a plan that God had because he loved us. Paul tells us it was all for a purpose, right? It's for a purpose. There's a reason behind this love. See, contrary to popular belief, God is not a taker. God is a giver. He gives us all good things. He gives us exactly what we need. And most importantly, he gave us a savior to rescue us from the depths of our sin. A lot of people don't believe that. A lot of people don't believe that that God is love, that God is a generous God, a God that gives. And listen, church, we need to remind them of that. We need to remind those around us that there is a God who has put forth his son for them. His own son, it says. Not some other son, not some angel, not uh, the, the family pet. His own son, and this word own here would mean like uh, the same nature, the same divine nature. See, God didn't choose second best. God didn't choose a second-rate substitute for you and I. God sends his son to die for us. He has lavished his love on us, Paul says. 1 John 3.1, same writer of the Gospel of John says, See what great love the Father has lavished on us that we, and this is for all believers, that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Brothers and sisters, let it comfort your soul today. That God, the creator of the universe, Alpha and Omega had no beginning, no end. The sovereign over all things set his love on you and then displayed this love by giving his best. And then Jesus experienced the worst, experienced what we deserve, death. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. One of the ways that I think we can kind of see this in our culture, and it's a good illustration, I think, that has holes in it, but still a good one. When someone gets married, they give a ring. And the ring symbolizes a commitment, a covenant that, hey, I'm in this from death 
from now till death do us part, right? And, and this ring will be a symbol of my covenant love for you. It's a symbol. I'm, I'm giving you something. When uh, I officiate weddings, it's, uh, we go through that. We, we talk about that, right? Like, okay, hey, what gift of love do you have for uh, so-and-so? And uh, to show your covenant love for them. And they would say a ring. And so then they put the ring on. They uh, say vows to that person that what the ring represents. There's an offering there. And that ring uh, essentially gives the symbol that I'm united with you. The same way God has given us his son as more than a symbol of his covenant love for us, but as a reality. And based on Christ, now those who believe in him are united to God forever. I don't know about you, but that is a glorious reality. Thank you. The good thing is, this isn't just a temporal reality. The good news is that is an eternal reality. Look on to what he says. Continuing on in verse 16, he says that whoever believes in him, should not perish, but have eternal life. Eternal life. Now, perish here means to suffer. It means to suffer complete destruction or ruin. The word eternal, most of us know, but it means to last forever. Now, we are eternal beings. We will either exist eternally with God, or we will eternally perish. There is no third option here. And notice the simplicity that we're given. There's a simplicity here that says, whoever does what? Come on, believes. It's not a big list of things we've got to do. It's not a big list of rituals, or it's not a get these things in order, and then come to me, and then you will believe. It's a believe in the name of Jesus Christ. And what will happen? You shall be saved. Believe. It's not a bunch of hocus pocus. It's just believe. Notice the language again. Whoever. Whoever believes, over and over again, we read that there are no ethnic or cultural barriers to God's salvific love. This also tells us that no one has sinned too much or has sinned too bad. That it's whoever believes in Christ. Pastor Brandon brought this up uh, a couple weeks ago, but think of the thief on the cross. One of the thieves denies Christ. He will spend eternity perishing. The other thief, what does he do? He believes. He says, you, you must be Savior. You must be the Messiah. 
And what does Jesus tell him? You will be with me in heaven today. There, hey, look, that, that guy was dying. He didn't have a, a, a lot of time left to, to, to get some things in order. But Jesus promises him eternity with him based on what? His belief. We read that those who believe move from one that is perishing to one that has the promise of eternal life. Anyone who believes in Jesus for salvation, who looks to Jesus. Now listen, it's no more perishing. No more. It's a marvelous reality that God would create a way for us not to just have like some peace in this world, I mean, that's, that's really good, right? It's good to have peace, to know that, hey, we, we don't fear death. There's nothing that, that man can do to us. We, we're safe and secure. But to know that we will be with our creator for eternity is a marvelous reality that I don't think a lot of us truly comprehend. Listen, the, the best of the best here is a glimpse, a mere foretaste of the glories to be found in eternity with God. Look, we're not going to be sitting around on clouds with angels dropping grapes in our mouths, okay? We're going to be, like, enjoying God. We're going to be working. We're going to be working in the way that God intended work to be, not the sweat of our brow be good. It's going to be ruling and reigning with Jesus forever. It's a beautiful reality. And side note here, we must remember that, that God's not contained and confined by time. Right? So, so this means that God set his love. He, he loved you before you existed and all the way to eternity now. There, there, there's no, like, little blurb on the timeline of your life that says, okay, God started loving me here. God set his love on you. Remember what we just read in Ephesians 1, 3, and 4, right? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as he chose us in him, before the foundations of the world. Brothers and sisters, that's a glorious reality. That God set his love on you eternally. Praise be to God. At this point in this conversation, Nicodemus' head's probably spinning. He, he is probably losing his mind. He's probably wondering, like, what in the world is this guy talking about? He's probably having one of those, like, I wish I wouldn't have ever stepped into this conversation moments. We've all been there. But God, Jesus doesn't stop there. He doesn't just leave him there. He continues on. Look at verse 17. For God did not send his son into the world 
to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. We see this fourth glorious reality here, that the extraordinary love of God is intentional. It's intentional here. So we read here that Jesus was sent for a purpose. He was sent here to to accomplish something. He had a goal. He had a mission. There was something he was sent to do. By God's grace, praise be to God that we read that the plan here was not condemnation. Uh, That just means judgment. See, this time, Jesus was on a rescue mission. He was on a mission to seek and save the lost, as another gospel writer puts it. Like I mentioned, likely Nicodemus, like most Jews, thought that the Messiah was going to come and judge on the first advent, on Jesus' first arrival. Thought that, okay, when the Messiah gets here, man, he's going to destroy all the Gentiles, all the pagan nations. He's going to wipe them out. Let's go. Where's the Messiah? Jesus tells him something different. He says, I came to save. It's not condemnation. I I, I came here to do something. He says, my first coming is an arrival in order to, to die for my people. Like, like basically, it's not them that's going to die now. It's, it's me. I have to die in order that they may live. Now, it's important to remember that our Savior Jesus Christ, the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings, the Sovereign, the one who is the overall, will return again to judge. Now, this should compel us to evangelize. Uh, In Acts 17, Paul is preaching to the men in Athens, and he says in verse 30, he says, The times of ignorance God overlooked. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent. And then in verse 31, because he has fixed the day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man, speaking of Jesus Christ here, whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising Jesus Christ from the dead. So Paul calls people to repentance. He said, listen, you have an opportunity now before the king returns to make claim on his land. To repent, to believe. And he says to them, he's coming again. He's coming to judge. Uh, Later, Paul says in Uh, Another portion of scripture, he says, like, I've said what I had to say. Your blood is on your hands now. But Paul never shied away from the message, repent and believe. Repent and believe. Salvation 
is here. Brothers and sisters, we must continue to preach that same message. We, we must continue to be a people that says, hey, listen, God still saves today. While you have opportunity to hear, you have a mind to respond, mouth to confess, you have the opportunity to become a child of God. Amen, somebody. That is glorious news, and it is glorious news that we must share with the lost and dying world around us who are groping just, I mean, it's, it's amazing the, the answers that people are grabbing these days. We have no lack of revelation that we are living in a dark, sinful, wicked world. Now, Nicodemus didn't like this. And sometimes we've got to check our own hearts to ensure that we don't align ourselves like the Pharisees and wish that Jesus would do the judging and condemnation now. Yep. Because oftentimes, right? This is, I'm preaching to, to me. Oftentimes, I can find myself in the, like, just, just wipe them out. Just, like, they're wicked. They're, they're destroying the country. They're destroying the world. Like, just, just wipe them out. And I need to quickly repent of that. And I need to quickly look to who God is and what Jesus Christ came to do. We cannot be a people that wish that Jesus would do more judging and would do less saving. We need to be a people who pray for repentance, pray for salvation, pray that our leaders, our neighbors, those around us would repent and would turn to the true living God. That is how we engage with the world around us. We don't shy away from truth. We don't coddle them on their way to hell. We speak truth in love and say, listen, brother, sister, governor, president, you need to repent. And we need to stand on that truth. Offering them the same salvation that we were freely given, that we have not earned. Listen, good way to reconcile, like, how does God love the world is, and how do we then, right, how do we love the world is just a reminder of Jesus' command to love our enemies. Now, I don't love my enemies in the same way I love my family, the same way even I, I love you all. Right? There's different things. Now, I, I probably should in different ways. But we are told to love our enemies. This is what Jesus does when he 
comes into the world that what? That hated him, that despised him, comes to the world, and he dies for your sins. See, God intentionally sends Jesus Christ to be an expression of his love for the world. But there's a harsh reality that makes God's love even more extraordinary, more amazing as we look at verse 18. Final and fifth reality of God's love is that God's extraordinary love is unsolicited. It's unsolicited. Unsolicited just means it's like not wanted. Whoever, verse 18, notice the language again. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. So what do we read here? If you believe, you're not condemned. If you don't believe, you're already condemned because you don't believe. Here we see this doctrine of original sin come into play. Look, everyone is condemned already. Already condemned. It's a popular belief that people are good, right? And Christianity claims that, you know, uh, you just, that God's like up and he's just picking people. Okay, you're going to hell. You're going to heaven. You're going to hell. You're going to heaven. Okay, good enough, not good enough. That is completely wrong. This verse tells us, along with the rest of Scripture, that each of us were condemned before Christ saves us. David's words after his sin in Psalm 51.5, he says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity. Fancy word for sin. And in sin did my mother conceive me. He's saying like, I was a sinner from the beginning. Now my wife just gave birth to a beautiful baby girl. I've wanted a baby girl for years. I love her so much. But she's a little sinner. She cries when she wants stuff. She's not very polite. She doesn't let my wife sleep at night. She's very demanding. She screams at us quite often throughout the day. She's selfish. She's not paying any bills, not contributing, not carrying her weight. She's not doing dishes yet. But she's a sinner already. I'm trying to, I've got boys, right? And I know how to, I'm a man, and I know how to, to teach boys to become men. I'm trying to figure out. Like, how am I going to teach this young lady to be a woman of God? And you fathers of girls, you can give me all your tips and pointers. I'm looking forward to that. But because of the inherited sin of our original mother and father, Adam and Eve, we are all guilty of sin from the moment we are born. The moment we are born. So listen, what this reminds us 
this is how the unsolicited, right? The world wasn't like begging for God's love. Like, please love us, right? We, no. They come out of the womb stiff-arming God's love. Like, I don't want it. I don't need it. Rejecting under condemnation. But listen, as this is one of the hardest things for people to grasp, it is also one of the greatest truths to behold. Because when you see your own sin, it magnifies the love of God. See, in America, we have a high view of self and a low view of God. And listen, it's the other way around from beginning to end in Scripture. It is God who is awesome. It is God who is great. It is God who loves not because we've done something, but because he is love. When you think of a simple illustration here, you're all familiar with the Titanic, right? Titanic set sail in April of 1912, and whether they knew it or not, everyone on the Titanic who thought it was the unsinkable ship, they were destined for destruction. They were on their way. They were headed towards destruction, every single person on that ship. Now, some were saved. Some were were removed from there. Out of the 2,200-plus people on the ship, only 700 survived. But the point is, is that they were destined for disaster. But some were saved. There were some that were saved, just as it is with all of us. See, the, the world is on a sinking ship of sin, headed for destruction, totally unable to save ourselves. But God sends a son to rescue us. And brother and sister Christian, those who have believed, who have faith in Christ for salvation, you can rest. You can rest in a God whose extraordinary love will love and protect us preserve us all the way to eternity. So a couple questions for you. Are you discouraged today? I mean, does the, the, the weight of the world just have you bogged down? Does your circumstance have you feeling as if, like, there's no way God loves me? I've said this before, and I'll say it again. Your circumstance does not determine God's love for you. God's love has been set forth through Christ. Brother and sister, look to the cross. Maybe you're in here and you've you've lost your zeal for evangelism. Right? You've just kind of grown like complacent, comfortable, and you know, you know there's a lot of lost people around you, but I'm not really, you know, not really too concerned about it. 
man, I want to challenge you. I want to encourage you today. And point them here to this also familiar passage. Help them to see that even God has displayed his love in a way that they still have time to respond. To respond to the message. The passage is... Passages of scripture that tell us that, that God shows his love in common grace, that he just he sets his 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 love and, and shows his love in, in common ways that he would even let the sun shine on the wicked. He would send rain on the wicked. Brothers and sisters, let us not be a people that, that grow cold towards the world around us. Let us feel the desperation that is the, the precipice of eternity. That like people are about to just take the step and, and that's it. We must be a people that have a zeal for sharing the love of God. Maybe you realize like I don't know the love of God. I want to encourage you, turn to Christ. Believe. It's pretty simple. If you are here, you're being moved towards a response. Talk to the Lord. Confess your sin. Repent. Believe in Jesus Christ. As we close, I want to encourage us, right? Not to overlook this section of Scripture as one that has been worn out, overused, and often misused. But instead, I pray that John 3, 16 through 18 becomes to you as an old, familiar friend. One that provides comfort. One that provides exactly what you need. You know you can go there every time. And you can find encouragement for your soul. So my prayer for us as a church, my prayer for us as we continue to seek to understand who God is and what he's done for us in Christ. Let me pray. Father, we thank you so much for Jesus. We thank you that you you set your love on us while we were yet Sinners, Christ died for us. Help us to be captured, to be compelled by the love of God in our own lives, in the ways that we evangelize, in the ways that we live. And God, I just pray that each and every one of us would cling to the beautiful reminder. Christ was put forth. You didn't give your second best. You didn't give the another option. You, you gave yourself. So Jesus, we thank you for your work. Spirit, we thank you for your moving, your sealing, moving us today in Christ's name.